and welcome to PCTY Talks. I'm your host, Sherry Simpson. During our time together, we'll stay close to the news and info you need to succeed as an HR pro. And together, we'll explore topics around HR thought leadership, compliance, and real life HR situations we face every day. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Marisa Randazzo, Director of Threat Assessment at Georgetown University and Executive Director of the Ontic Center of Excellence, and Fred Burton, New York Times bestselling author and Executive Director of the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Thank you both for joining me today. I'd love to start by hearing a little bit about what inspired you both to dedicate your careers to keeping the world a safer place. So Sherry, let me start out. Um, I actually got into the Secret Service by accident. I was in a graduate program in psychology, and I had had this phenomenal course when I was in college as an undergrad that combined aspects of psychology and the legal system. And I knew I wanted to do something in that domain. Didn't want to go to law school. I ended up getting uh, into graduate school for psychology. And when I got there, I realized it wasn't a good fit for me. I didn't want to become a professor. I wanted to work in like an applied setting where I could see psychology in action. But the program I was in was really geared toward developing graduate students to go into academic jobs and colleges and universities. So I spent my summer sneaking off and doing internships at places where they were using psychology in an applied setting. So I worked at the Rand Corporation for a couple of summers. I was at the Federal Judicial Center. And then I happened upon an internship program with the US Secret Service. And at that point, I found what I was looking for. I was in a, a setting where they valued behavioral research and where we would do research that was directly tailored toward helping Secret Service agents do a better job at protecting the president. And so that internship turned into a, a full-time position. I ended up being there over a decade doing exactly that type of work. How fascinating. Fred, what about you? Oh my gosh. I, I kind of fell into this. I started out when I was 17 as a volunteer at the Bethesda Chevy Chase Rescue Squad in Bethesda, Maryland. I caught the bug in public safety working there. We had a whole cadre of us that were volunteers and many were police officers, for example, with DC or Montgomery County or the US Park Police. And in fact, we had uh, two or three officers at the rescue squad that actually were US Park Police pilots uh, for Eagle One, uh, the the wonderful work they do in the DC area is just phenomenal with just not only escorting the president, but doing life safety issues, life safety issues, uh, picking up injured parties along the um, the DC area and transporting them with life flights. So I became a police officer in uh, Montgomery County, Maryland. Uh, Sometimes I regret not going to the fire service or rescue service uh, at my age, but it is what it is when I reflect back on it. And then I had a wise old sergeant that kind of said, do you really want to do this the rest of your life? Why don't you try to go federal? And I knew that uh, there were these group of agents that protected the secretary of state because they were in our patrol district when 
George Shultz was the Secretary of State, and I really didn't know much. And, you know, remember, this is the time frame before the internet. So you really had to kind of do your homework and the old fashioned way, call around. So I just drove by and stopped and talked to these folks. And they said, yeah, you know, we have agents scattered all over the world. And I was uh, always interested in terrorism. So I applied and I, for some reasons, unbeknownst to me, I got hired and uh, ended up uh, right out of basic agent training being assigned to our counterterrorism division, which uh, later became uh, also the protective intelligence division. So that's, that's how I got into this business. A lot of it, I think, was just fate or maybe sheer luck, however you want to look at that, Sherry. It's so interesting hearing you talk about wanting to go potentially the firefighter route instead of the police route. My husband's a firefighter. So um, there's that that love-hate camaraderie situation between police and fire. <laughs> so I love hearing that. You know, as we think about technology-led protective intelligence, why is that so important right now? I'll tackle that first. Uh, well, when you're at my age and you look back on first getting in this business, uh, you know, we were working with three by five index cards and uh, no cell phones. And our database was very manual. It was very word of mouth. It was very old school. It was typewritten reports. It was, here's a picture of a person of interest that has a fixation in a dignitary, whether that be a Princess Diana that was visiting or a Yasser Arafat. So for me, as I look back, the inflection point is technology has really changed our business to the point that it's really amazing. And I'm fascinated by what's on the horizon. But uh, the only way you can manage information today, in my judgment, is with technology. Sherry, let me add to that, that technology I see as as a necessary component of security efforts today, but but not everything you need, right? So um, to echo Fred's comments, Secret Service and other protective agencies used to rely on these, you know, low-tech, no-tech methods of index cards and, and you know, playing cards and Polaroid pictures of, of a whiteboard of where everyone was, for example, and, and, and keep those in a filing system. And we've gradually been able to include technology in a way that enhances security. And I will tell you right now, especially kind of coming out of, you know, 18 months of pandemic and, and changes in workplace and, and changes in the nature of threats and an increased volume in threats that technology is absolutely critical just to keep a handle on everything that's coming in for executive protection teams, agencies with protective responsibilities, corporate security departments, campus security, et cetera. So you need technology just to keep track of it all, but you can't rely on technology to do the work for you. There is still that absolutely vital human element of putting it all together, analyzing what you see, working in part on on information corroboration and also gut reaction at the same time, and then being able to kind of defend the process that you use to look at and see what needs your attention most or most urgently and what can you just monitor, for example. You mentioned how much workplaces have changed, and I'm curious your perspective on, you know, what are some of the top threats 
that organizations are seeing today, um, especially now that we are um, in this setting now where we have huge remote workforces or hybrid workforces. What changes have you guys seen? You know, as I look at your your question, I'm I always, as a student of history, kind of reflect back to how far we've come and and look at all the different shifts that have changed in this business and how how most of them have been driven by tragedy, meaning you can go back to, for example, whether it be the assassination of John F. Kennedy at Dealey Plaza by a sniper to the sniper in the tower at the University of Texas in the 60s, back when there wasn't a campus police department, uh, there wasn't a SWAT team that could respond. And then you look at the events, for example, at Columbine and how that changed not only the tactical response, but the kind of wonderful work that uh, Maurice's team does with the Sigma behavior analysis and trying to get in front of these threats. So uh, for me, as I reflect back on that question, you always have a difficult time when you start looking at this in context in getting in front of threats versus trying to be reactive and responding to that catastrophic event as it unfolds. And as someone who has worked a lot of these investigations over the years from embassy bombings to attacks on principles to hijackings to various terrorist attacks, the bulk of that work is always in a reactive phase. And I think today with some of the technology solutions and uh, the behavioral management kind of programs that are in place, you can, for the first time, actually get in front of some of these threats. And for me, that is one of the significant kinds of points that I would love to see more companies take advantage of, because I think that there's still a lot of legacy systems that are stuck causing corporate security departments, HR and corporate legal programs to simply live in a world that um, is just good enough when they could be so much better. Sherry, let me add to that, that, that what we've been seeing uh, for workplaces and, and, and other entities uh, is a dramatic increase in a couple of different types of threats, especially coming out of 18 months of, of pandemic-related lockdowns and changes. We are seeing an increase in the number of threats that workplaces are facing, for example, coming from personnel behavior. So a, a, an employee who does not want to have to adhere to a vaccine mandate, but handles that in a way that's threatening or aggressive. We're seeing an increase in domestic violence threats to employees that come to an employer's attention. Uh, for employees that work in a workplace, we know that that is the second most likely place where they would be killed if they're going to be killed in a, in a domestic violence related incident is in the workplace because their partner or former partner can find them there, right? We've seen an uptick of that in COVID, post-COVID. And then we've also seen a dramatic increase in the number of threats being reported to HR, employee assistance, corporate security, because what we're seeing at the same time is an, a, a 
increase in sort of the level of fear and anxiety that so many employees are facing right now. And this comes in large part because they've had to face prolonged stressors and have faced life-threatening, financial life-threatening, a whole host of, of stresses that they're now bringing back to the workplace or have with them in the workplace. Those haven't necessarily gone away. So we've got more anxious employees to begin with whose level of fear, that threshold of fear may be lower than it, it used to be. And at the same time, we also are seeing an increase in, in bad behavior generally in terms of how people are handling disputes in the workplace, grievances, that, that our ability to sort of be patient and, and bring a more collaborative approach to problem solving is, is tapped out. And people are bringing more hostility and aggression. So right now, workplaces are challenged with looking at increased fear and increased number of incidents that they actually have to look into and figure out, is this a risk or is this something we, we actually don't have to be worried about? And if, if I could add to that point, uh, Sherry, I know major multinational companies that have, for example, very effective EAP programs and active shooter training at their companies. And in fact, the active shooter training in some places are the most watched videos inside a company. And I applaud companies for taking steps to educate employees as to what they do, but that is kind of like the undercurrent to echo what Marisa has said too. And then, as we here at the center have been talking to a lot of chief security officers and chief legal counsels over the past 18 months or so, and there are upticks in EAP referrals. So you throw that into the mix, and it's just a challenging environment for anybody trying to manage this as we attempt to stair-step our way back into the workplace. Marisa, how do you see HR professionals either educating themselves or being more cognizant of these threats. You know, I think about the clients that we have at Paylocity and our sweet spot is between 100 and 250 employees. So I know when I've worked in organizations that small, to be frank, we don't have, we didn't have an active shooter policy. We didn't have a bomb threat policy. We didn't really talk about domestic violence from the perspective of what if it comes inside our doors. So how do HR professionals get up to speed so that they can, like Fred mentioned, be ahead of it and not reactive to these things? Excellent question. And I, I want to emphasize that HR professionals are such a critical component of effective workplace violence prevention, but also it's something that should be done in collaboration with other components of the workplace. It's not just an HR responsibility. It's not just their problem to solve. So there's actually an American national standard that HR professionals might be familiar with that was actually co-authored by the Society for Human Resource Management. So it's the American national standard for workplace violence prevention and intervention. And it really provides a roadmap for how organizations can implement a workplace violence prevention and threat assessment capacity with HR as a absolutely critical component of every piece of it. It really helps us get left of boom. So it's a roadmap to help an organization do a needs assessment. What do we have in place? What do we need to add? 
uh, to help develop a multidisciplinary team, even for small organizations, that you can use someone who's got HR expertise, someone who brings a legal counsel input, someone who brings a security input, and maybe you have a corporate security department, or maybe you rely on contract security, or maybe it's, it's doing outreach to local law enforcement because you don't have any of your own security piece. If you're a small company that uses external HR, you can still build it that way and talk with your external HR provider about how to put this into place. But it's really about getting sort of those three major components at the table together to figure out when we have a concerning situation, how are we going to how are we going to get ahead of it? And that HR can look at it as they're not handing something off to corporate security or to legal to handle for them, that they're going to be partners in handling a situation. And one of the reasons HR personnel are so vital to this process is because they are most likely to be the ones to know about a problem as it starts to emerge. An employee that's starting to show some distress, some aggressive behavior that they hadn't seen before, a manager who's now worried about how to handle a disciplinary meeting or a, a termination meeting. So HR can be the real conduit to say, look, we're starting to see some things bubble up. Let's talk about them early and let's follow this behavioral threat assessment process, which I can explain more in a second, to, to see if, if we have reason to be concerned and if so, what we can do about it. And I want to emphasize this piece about it. So many professionals don't know that it is quite feasible to prevent violence in the workplace. We do so much around active shooter preparation that what do we do if this happens? We need to put as much effort into what do we do to ensure it does not happen. And these are the, the violence prevention programs, the threat assessment programs I'm talking about. A lot of people don't know that acts of violence in the workplace, active shooter situations, domestic violence that comes into the workplace, stalking that may impact the workplace, disgruntled employees or applicants, um, fixation on a CEO. All of those are, are examples of what we call targeted violence. And there has been a lot of research on how targeted violence happens and where prevention is possible. So a couple of key points is that Targeted violence doesn't occur randomly. People don't just snap. They, they show concerning behavior for a while beforehand. They follow a pathway to violence where they are thinking about what they want to do and then planning it out and then preparing by, by getting sort of the, the lethal methods and means that they want to have and then actually carrying it out. And they typically tell their other people beforehand what they're going to do. So we have cases of workplace violence where coworkers heard about these plans beforehand. People saw um, threatening posts on social media that there was uh, you know, direct communication about what someone wanted to do because they wanted to keep one coworker safe, for example. So there's a lot that HR can look at beforehand and a whole process based on research on targeted violence and prevention that they can follow. A lot of it too, Sherry, is a little bit of denial at times in the C-suite. For example, we recently conducted a survey looking at uh, a range of different protective intelligence kind of issues. And some of the numerics back from that survey is that literally CEOs at times do not believe that this can unfold in their company. And that's one of the issues. I think another part of the issue here is uh, disconnect between at times HR and security, where 
HR will, let's say, terminate a poor performer and security doesn't even know about it, or uh, that individual will be escorted out of the building and then uh, resurface in a security-related probe down the road. So at times, there's just disconnects that take place, and I've seen that happen a lot. The other interesting aspect here, too, is you have many, many companies developing insider threat programs, but it's predominantly geared towards the theft of intellectual property versus trying to figure out whether or not uh, we need a holistic approach to that employee that may be, to Maurice's point, uh, leaning towards some sort of act of violence. So uh, that's part of the problem, I think, as well in this space. So, you know, what you're doing with your organization and the wonderful event that you had out in Las Vegas and uh, these kinds of podcasts, I think, help just have that uh, cross between HR and security, which will go a long way. And both can ask more informed questions or try to work closer together. Sherry, let me add one more thing here. Um, we've helped a, a whole host of organizations build workplace violence prevention programs and taught them this threat assessment process so they're up and running on their own. Um, one of the things that I've often heard, concerns I've often heard from human resource professionals is, well, I don't want to call security because I don't know what's going to happen if I pass this along to security. I know this employee. I've worked well with this employee. We've got a good relationship. I don't want, you know, if I just turn this over to security, who knows what will happen? What I want to emphasize is that when you set up a workplace threat assessment program or workplace violence prevention program the right way with HR at the table from the beginning, that those relationships don't get jeopardized. In fact, you are looking whenever you have a situation that's raised some concern about potential violence, you're looking to see who already has a good relationship with this employee and how can we use that to help de-escalate. Time and again, people who carry out acts of workplace violence do so because they themselves feel at the end of their rope, they are feeling desperate, they feel like they've run out of options. Sometimes they're even hoping for what we call a suicide by cop scenario. They're hoping to provoke some violent confrontation because they just don't see any other way out. HR and EAP professionals know ways out and, and they know how to help employees connect to those resources. So when you build a workplace threat assessment program, the best way to do it is to have human resources and, and employee assistance at the table from the get-go to look at what do we have in place here that we can use? Who, how do we know these employees? What do we know about them? Who has a good relationship? And to really make sure that that, that aspect of it stays connected throughout the life of a, of a concern. Fred, I'm curious from your perspective, as HR professionals really build this relationship with their, you know, their internal IT or um, SecOps teams, those kinds of things. What are things that those IT teams we should learn from them from an HR perspective, right? What are the things that they're doing and looking at to be progressive that we haven't even thought to tap them for? Yeah, it's a good question. What you're looking at is this convergence between physical and cyber. And it's really an interesting point in the industry today because there still is a tremendous amount of siloed operations, even in the security space between IT and physical security, or however you want to break that down. But 
there's hope on the horizon. I see more and more convergence inside of even coordinated GSOCs or fusion centers where IT and security are co-located so they can assess a situation collectively that might surface because in many ways, IT is narrowly looking at those kinds of potential cyber breaches, cyber attacks, DNS attacks, or the theft of intellectual property. So let's say, for example, if company A knows they're going to have a reduction in force three months from now and they start planning for that, IT can get in front of that by flagging and looking for certain accounts of individuals that are going to be let go and try to get in front of the uh, downloading of, let's say, uh, sales, contacts, uh, intellectual property, in, in many cases, uh, trademark property, uh, to try to help mitigate that loss to that company. So, you know, there's a lot of things that uh, can be leveraged if the HR folks would bring in certain key uh, players at a company to help them get in front of some of these problems. And, you know, I, I know that it's very, very difficult at some of the, you know, we work for some of the largest companies in the world here at Ontic. And I know it's challenging at times to get everybody on the same sheet of music, but most of these larger companies have suffered so much chaos over the years that you see more and more collaboration at times than you do with some of the other smaller companies that perhaps haven't experienced either a large data breach or an act of workplace violence or a terminated employee showing up at uh, the CEO's residence, which you know does happen. And we see these kinds of events quite a lot. Sherry, let me add that one of the um... One of the little bits of guidance that we'll often give organizations as they look to to figure out how human resources and and IT security, information security can work together, is really kind of a matter of like, hey, it can start with a cup of coffee. Just sit down and and get to know each other and and start to start to find a common common language. We are all guilty of using the jargon of our professional fields too much. And so to almost do like, hey, let's grab coffee or let's do a brown bag lunch for each other and explain what is it that we do? Because oftentimes departments have no idea what other departments in the same organization do. And it can just start some idea generation, like how could we work together? Um, we've, we've worked with corporations who have been worried or reluctant to have IT security, information security at the table because they feel like they don't want their employees to be sort of under a, a big brother, a constant monitoring system, feel like we're reading their email all the time or looking. And what we, what we try to help them understand is that that's really not the way to set this up. The way to set it up is, is if one department identifies some concern, some anomaly, and they want to get more information. So we're not monitoring all of our employees, but if we see some after hours behavior on our systems that isn't consistent with someone, one, per, one employee's normal access, for example, then the IT security folks should reach out to HR to find out what they know. Do they know anything about that employee? Are they worried about that employee? Well, they know that employee has now been 
applying for salary advances and they're under financial stress. Okay, so what what were they doing then? Let's figure out what's going on and let's solve the underlying problem of financial insecurity as opposed to then just firing the employee and looking at, okay, and then hoping for, for the best. So there are ways, again, to get ahead of these problems. And it's not by constantly monitoring everyone's behavior, but when something pops up on the radar screen of one department, it might be a, a, that person's direct manager. You can then go to these other departments and say, what do you know? Are you concerned? Is, do we have a problem? And if so, how can we solve it together? And also, I know companies that actually mask the identity of individuals out of privacy concerns and are laser focused on just behaviors, much like you'll see in the U.S. intelligence community when in many ways they're looking at individuals they suspect that are engaged in espionage-related activities. So there are ways that this can be done depending upon you know, how these teams are structured to the point that you know, everybody gets a fair shake. Uh, but everybody that has um, a stake in the safety of everybody in the workplace is at that table and can evaluate certain key behaviors, which, which might be indicative of a problem. And so, you know, that's the kind of workplace that, let, let's, let's face it, this past couple of years have been horrible. And I'm a big believer that people as they go back into the workplace are going to want to be in a place where they feel safe and secure. And so therefore it's incumbent upon the C-suite down and especially the people, people, the HR people to make sure that everybody is comfortable in the workplace and they're not worried about their office mates. And uh, that's the future that we're in. So uh, I'm optimistic that on a positive side, that the pandemic has caused more engagement in that kind of space where people uh, are in many ways looking out for each other uh, a little bit better at times than I think perhaps we have in the past. With the change in the workforce and this huge remote population, Marisa, I've been thinking about what you said about observing behaviors and the way we observe behaviors has changed so much in the last 18 months, um, especially if you're a culture that's not a cameras on culture. Um, so what are some things we need to be looking at from either a technology tracking perspective or you know, maybe some new behaviors that we're going to see on video or activities that we should be more aware of in a different way than we were before? It actually is very similar to the behaviors that we already would want to look into further when we were completely in person. Um, and that is behaviors where someone's showing some signs of distress so short-tempered when they didn't used to be, um, talking about feeling like there's you know, no future or feeling increasingly frustrated. Now, a lot of us feel increasingly frustrated. It doesn't mean that, that we're at risk of doing anything. The whole point here is to keep some eyes and ears out for our employees who look like they're not handling things as well as they used to, not to say, we're worried you're going to become the next workplace shooter, but to be able to take that compassionate, caring approach to find out what's going on. And 
is there something we as employers, as HR professionals, as employee assistance professionals can do to take the pressure off a little bit, to find a little bit, of, to find a way to help? Um, so it, we've had situations where, you know, we've got employees who um, had been on camera remotely and now all of a sudden aren't comfortable being on camera and that's concerned coworkers. Well, an HR professional can have that conversation maybe in a way that a manager can't. And the HR professional, you know, can say what's going on. We had a similar situation and what we found out was that the person was, um, was embarrassed because they now had, they had to relocate to they, they had 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 to move out of their normal dwelling had to relocate to a space that they were now sharing with a spouse and kids and so their background they couldn't find their own didn't have their own space in which to engage in a workplace so there are several people in the room there's a reasonable explanation for that but the change in behavior raised concern so uh, what we want to do is take a caring approach are, are you worried about the well-being of a coworker and or 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 are you worried about you know safety whatever the case is let us know what you're worried about why you're worried and then we can take a look at it that lower threshold is is really helpful and it's the type of work that hr professionals are are doing all the time um, there's no magic tea leaves that we're trying to read or, you know, eye tracking that, that on Zoom that <laughs> we should be worried about. It really is a matter of um, this person doesn't seem to be doing as well as they used to. Let's do a check-in and, and see what's going on. Because oftentimes there's a, a fairly simple fix or some, some temporary change that we can allow that helps to take the pressure off, helps them get to back up to their, their normal performance. And on a, from a practical security officer perspective too, Sherry, one of the challenges with the work from home is that, let's face it, from a security management perspective, you are better off if you have a building that you can lock down with access control, visitor management, and you're able to eyeball each other every day. Now it becomes so complex, to Maurice's point, with our world in this virtual environment and you have the workplace now in many ways, and there's probably already a lot of lawsuits in, involved on this issue today of what constitutes an act of workplace violence, meaning uh, is your home now the workplace? So there's privacy issues that come into play there. So this is just a very complex landscape that I think collectively we can figure out the answers, but individually, I wouldn't want to be, as a chief security officer, that person making that decision. And so that's the kind of world that we're in today. And I think that what I've seen is more outreach from security into HR and security into facilities and others to try to get a better handle on just the overall safety and security of the workplace, wherever that might be. Sherry, let me add one thing that we've seen now um, it, it, that I've also seen after kind of major traumatic events. So after a 9-11, for example, um, one of the things that we've seen in, in many organizations that I had a chance to work with after 9-11 was impaired leadership. So leadership that, that stays on and, and they very much want to help their organization, their agency through this incredibly horrific event. But their ability to do so either right after or several months after may be fairly impaired. And 
we are seeing this in some organizations coming back from 18 months of, of pandemic related stuff, that it may not have been the sort of single impact of a 9-11, but it's 18 months of cumulative stress. And for some of our leaders, our, our C-suite, our, our supervisors, this may be more than they can handle. And so we, I think it's important for organizations just to take a look and, and, and human resource professionals are in a, a perfect position to do this, is to just kind of ask about how people are doing. And when's the last time they got a break? We work with plenty of organizations where the leadership really hasn't taken a break since the pandemic hit because they felt like they couldn't take their hands off the wheel and, and, and take some time away. So to have HR professionals be able to check in, like how, how's our leadership doing? Does anyone on our leadership need a break, some time away, someone to step in in an interim position for a little bit? It's just because you have led through the past 18 months doesn't necessarily mean that you're not experiencing this and, and couldn't benefit from a little bit of break or, or change in responsibilities as well. And if I could add a tad, you made me think of something, uh, Marisa, which uh, was very profound. And I think that's very interesting what you raised is I hear it all the time. Chief security officers are getting mixed signals, meaning the C-suite the thinks it's a wonderful idea or HR thinks it's a wonderful idea that everybody wants to come back in the office and hotel around. But in many ways, employees don't. And employees can't tell their boss that, no, I really don't want to be here unless it's done in some sort of anonymous kind of survey status. So there is this disconnect between what the employees really think versus what management thinks is best. And I don't know how you bridge that gap. That's for people much smarter than me, Marisa and Sherry, but um, it exists because I hear that a lot. You bring up some really good points, both of you. I, I would add, Marisa, to your comment, you know, HR professionals during this time have kind of been like CFOs during 2008. And so we have been on for 18 months. So if you're a CEO listening to this, I encourage you to ask your HR staff, do they need a break? Is, <laughs> is there a way you can step in for them? Um, and Fred, yeah. yeah, absolutely to your comment. I think we've talked a lot in the last few months here about collaboration, about really listening to your employees, about creating psychological safety. Those are all the things you need in an organization so that your employees do feel free to say, you know what, this remote thing is really working for me and I've been productive and here's the fruit of my labor. I really want to continue to do this. Can we figure that out? This has been a wonderful discussion, eye-opening for me. I hope our listeners got a lot out of it. I will definitely include in the show notes links to the books that you've written, Fred, and the resources, Marisa, that you mentioned. All of this has been really wonderful. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Thanks Sherry. for the opportunity. This has been great for us. This podcast is brought to you by Paylocity, a leading HCM provider that frees you from the tasks of today so you can focus more on the promise of tomorrow. If you'd like to submit a topic or appear as a guest on a future episode, email us at pctytalks at paylocity.com.